This episode is a part of a special series devoted to a new edited book titled Social and Emotional Learning in Physical Education, Applications in School and Community Settings. Published by Jones and Bartlett Learning in cooperation with Shape America, the book is edited by Dr. Paul Wright of Northern Illinois University and Dr. Kevin Richards of the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. It's available for fall 2021 instruction. The text will integrate well into physical education teacher education coursework, and it's a great resource for teachers looking to increase the focus on social and emotional learning in their classes. This special series is sponsored by the Physical Activity and Life Skills Group in the Department of Kinesiology and Physical Education at Northern Illinois University. Hey, we're still here at George Mason University for one last time before the book launches next week. We have one last podcast episode. Uh, I'm joined today by Dr. Zach Wall-Alexander, an Associate Professor of Physical Education at Northern Illinois University as well as Dr. Jen Jacobs, an assistant professor of sport and exercise psychology, also at NIU. Uh, They authored the chapter, Case Examples of Promising Practices in Outside of School Settings. Uh, Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Risto. We're very excited to be here. Great to speak with you today, Risto. Thank you. So I really enjoyed this this chapter, and I want to start with something you wrote about uh, in that chapter. So what differentiates an out-of-school time program from a curriculum or a school-based program? As in, like, what are the benefits and what are the drawbacks if we think about it from an SEL perspective? Yeah, I'll share a couple characteristics here. And I do have to give the caveat that I have never taught formally during school programs before. So I'm very much biased in the sense of there are so many benefits to out-of-school programs. Um, But generally, some of the things I've observed is that school programs tend to have to juggle a lot of priorities. So aligning with school standards, curricular demands, common core, whatever that is. Um, And school programs tend to maybe have a little more governance over how and what information can be presented to students. So the out-of-school program setting has a lot more autonomy and flexibility with kind of what you're teaching or educating with students. And so this could look like more of an emphasis on hands-on learning, um, high priority on relationship building over just specific content, um, opportunities for sort of cross-age interaction where you're getting you know, younger kids interacting with older kids. Um, It also has a lot of flexibility in terms of adopting program aims to really matching the population that you want to work with. So when it's an out-of-school setting, you can sort of spend a lot of time immersing yourself in the environment and understanding what are the needs of that population. Again, which can be a little bit more tricky within the school setting is you might have something sort of handed down to you of here's what you're supposed to do in the program. Um, I'd also mention that out-of-school programs have some scenarios that make it a bit more of a safe space for youth in terms of some some school settings are not safe for the kids that are there for a variety of reasons. Maybe it's, you know, in an environment where there's um, prevalent gang culture or, you know, they don't have a great relationship with some of the teachers or the administration there. So, so it kind of provides a, a safe space to one, be outside those boundaries, two, sort of reinvent yourself if, you know, you don't have the most positive 
um, experience in school. And then sort of lastly, it has the opportunity to mix with different stakeholders. So it's not just teachers, it could be parents, it could be community members, it could be, of course, um, students from other schools as well. Yeah, I think with my background in, in PEEP programming, when we train our physical educators, we really focus on kind of those three domains. We focus on the psychomotor, we focus on the cognitive, and we focus on the affective. But oftentimes the affective kind of gets left behind, whether that's due to shape standards, whether that's due to testing, whether that's due to some of these demands that are placed upon physical education teachers. Um, and so that sometimes comes in the way of, of really emphasizing and focusing on that affective within the physical education setting. And in addition to that, you know, so oftentimes PE teachers have a bunch of just limitations or constraints placed upon them. So whether it's the physical space that they can use, whether it's the amount of students that they have in a class, whether it is, you know, the actual, the, like, the, the, you know, the equipment that they have, whether it's the testing that they need to kind of fulfill and all of those things are kind of work in conjunction with this push now to focus on physical activity and focus on fitness, just with the obesity epidemic. And a lot of the times that this seems to be in physical education, it, it places that affective more in like the rearview mirror, where the PE teachers are really focused on developing skills, making sure the kids are physically active. Um, and and that, that could be, you know, a big constraint within the physical education setting. And as a relationship piece and the affective really does, again, kind of play second fiddle. So one, a good example of this, when I did my student teaching, you know, I, I always prided myself on being like, you know, a, like a pre-service teacher of the people and really trying to focus on building relationships with the kids. And I remember I was maybe five or six weeks into my first placement and we were working on a psychomotor assessment. And three days in a row, I was like, I had checklists, I had all these different um, cognitive assessments and I was, you know, nose deep in, in the books. And I, you know, I remember a conversation I had with my top ranked teacher and she said, hey, no, Zach, you didn't really talk to a kid in the last three days. You know what I mean? You were so focused on all these assessments. You, you literally didn't interact with the kids at all. And that was one of the things where I realized like, great, you know, some of these psychomotor skills and the cognitive development is so important, but it can't take priority over the affected all the time. Yeah. So I think the outer school, con like the outer school context, it really provides opportunities to just like Dr. Jacob said, really to focus the program on what's important to you and what's important to the people running the program and really making sure those key aims and those key outcomes, you know, are the key aims and key outcomes that you think are important. I think in terms of like drawback, I think the biggest thing is consistency with participants. Sometimes, you know, kids are coming on a Monday, but they can't come on Wednesdays. Or I just remember I had this one kid that would get a haircut every other week. And so he would be in 25% of our program. And, you know, that's a pretty big chunk. And, you know, that, that type of thing happens in the school setting as well. But typically, at least in my experience, it's happened a little bit more often in that out-of-school context. Yeah. And I, and I think that I, I'm, a, I'm a huge proponent for out-of-school time programs. And you're, you don't have to sell me at all on that. I, I preach from the mountaintops on that. On that. But I, I look at out-of-school time programs as this place that we actually get to teach the way we really want to or that our intuition or our training has said, these are the things you should be doing. And you have the flexibility, you have the time, and you have very limited constraints in what you want to do. So I think it's a, it's a great place for people who are really passionate and innovative, creative educators who really want to teach well. They have that time instead of, you have third grade for two 30-minute classes try to teach everything that you're supposed to in, in third grade. So uh, 
But before we get into the case studies, I want to kind of bring it to a general uh, overview. Uh, when I read this chapter, I couldn't stop but thinking of the sports as more of a delivery method of SEL competencies than as a space of competition that you wrote about. Can you can you talk to me about that? Yeah, well, well, first, hopefully the listeners of this podcast already sort of buy into sport as just being this great space, obviously not without fault, um, but it does really represent this kind of highly concentrated space to teach and practice life great lessons. And so maybe it's, you know, handling failure, persevering through tough times, working towards a goal, like resolving conflicts with colleagues or teammates. Um, so all of those things authentically happen in sport and sort of provide teachable moments versus some other context, maybe like a classroom setting where you maybe have to orchestrate or kind of create this more um, organic experience, which again, is not going to feel as organic. So you, you can talk about, you know, taking responsibility um, as a quarterback on a football field through communicating and making sure everyone knows the plays versus like taking responsibility, I don't know, in science class to make sure you don't like, you know, like mess up the experiment or something that's going to be less relevant and less exciting to a student. Um, so it kind of is just a sort of more enjoyable interactive space that authentically introduces life lessons and the art of it is sort of taking down the boundaries between sport and life. So it's helping students see the relevance and the value of life skills that they come up in sport, but it can be used in everyday life as well. And that sort of starts to mimic that sort of age old phrase of sport filled character, but with sort of one point to distinguish, which is, you, you know, you can't just roll out a ball and say, great, we're all going to be better people after we touch this magical ball or bat or whatever. Um, but it's really kind of more accurate to say that sport reveals character, but then, you know, intentional coaches who have the aims to develop youth in a positive way is sort of the, the vehicle or the model that helps provide these intentional opportunities to practice and to develop life skills. So that's sort of the way the research approaches it. And, and that kind of comes from this field called sport-based youth development. So when we look at this, there's so much sport in PE, but PE isn't all sport, right? So what do you think, looking at like a pre practitioner's point of view, what do you think they can learn from this chapter about the role of sport in physical education? Yeah, I think it's so important that physical education teachers, they, they, they don't forget about the effective and they don't um, forget that you can teach life skills through sport and that while teaching these life skills through sport, it's not going to hinder the development of skills. It's not going to hinder the development of physical activity or fitness gains. Like the research shows that you know, the more engaged students are, the more physically active they're going to be in class. And one of the things that, you know, you can make the argument of is that the stronger the, the relationship is between the students, between you know, students with students, but also students with teachers, the more engaged they're going to be, the better the, partition, the participation is going to be, which is going to lead to, you know, better skill development, more cognitive learning, but also those life skills. And, and that's one of the things I think is a misnomer is that if you're teaching to the effective and teaching life skills, you're doing it at the detriment to other things where, you know, 
I would make the case that if you're teaching life skills and you're teaching these competencies, that it's going to enhance the other things, which I think is so valuable for everyone to know. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm really excited to get to these case studies. I think the four case studies that you presented were, were all different, were all very interesting. Um, we'll highlight two of them, but what was what kind of made you choose these case studies? Why did you want to highlight these specific four? Uh, and what was like the thinking behind that? So generally, we started with the idea of finding programs that have that sort of relational and life skills emphasis, balancing both of those. But then what really narrowed our focus and helped us sort of choose these four programs to, to highlight in the chapter is an emphasis on sort of the social justice and like specific population angle. So each of these four chapters have um, a specific population coupled with a specific sort of social justice or like inclusion angle. Um, so maybe it's low income youth or girls who are bullied or youth who are incarcerated or um, first generation youth. And then there's some sort of kind of equity focus within that. And it's oftentimes around a, a kind of a life skill aim, but it, it can look like, you know, access to sport or um, like a like a psychologically safe space to be physically active and and I think that's something really important for for programs to consider is not just you know let's have a sports program that teaches life skills but let's really connect it to larger social justice aims that are super relevant in our world mm -hmm. today I mean these kids are growing up in a in an era where um, you know, protests are like normal to them and hashtags around social justice issues are like something that they use regularly in, in social media. And, and so I think it, it's kind of an authentic or natural focus for, for the, the adults and the systems in their lives to be on that same page of gathering around some sort of movement, whether it's a movement to serve other people outside of them or help them understand, you know, they're part of a population that has autonomy and empowerment, but also, you know, has some, some barriers to overcome as well. And, and so that's what we really looked for in the, the programs that we focused on. Yeah. And I talked about this in my uh, social cultural class this last semester of talking about what whether wherever you land on this situation as you lead this class and i've like introduced all these topics to you just know that the students that you're going to teach went through the blm movement went through these social uh you know protests they went through and came up in families who are increasingly more polarized uh politically so whether or not you agree with one side or the other just know that, let's say 1990, you could have gone through school and never knew if you were a Republican or a Democrat. Whereas now you see like a sixth grader and they're like super pro uh, dem Democrat or Republican and they're taking sides already at that young age. And so all of that conversation is spilling over. And I don't think the curriculum has enough time to discuss it. I, I know that there are teachers that do a really good job on it, but I don't, we ask people in PE to do it, but if we only allow them 60 minutes and two 30 minute classes to try to do it, I think it's, it's a lot. But um, let me ask you about Project Flex. And before I go into my question, I, I think it'd be 
good to just introduce what Project Flex is and uh, where it came from. Yeah, so kind of speaking broadly, Project Flex is a physical activity and life skills program um, where we work with incarcerated youth uh, in two detention centers, actually. And we try to instill uh, specific life skills through the actual, or through the vessel of sport. Um, and we've currently been at it for the last three years uh, where we were in one facility for two years. And then we just recently in January signed a contract uh, through the state to expand to our second facility, which is really exciting. So that opens us up to now working with instead of just male, males and females. Okay. And so who's, who's teaching the class? Are you, are you as a professor teaching the class or do you have undergraduate students, graduate students? So I did my uh, PhD, my graduate, my master's and PhD work at the University of Alabama. And when I was down there, one of my last semesters actually taught physical education in a female juvenile detention center. Um, and that was like one of the most exciting and stressful times of my life, trying to balance that between also collecting data and writing a dissertation. But after I was, you know, graduated and kind of moved on, I knew that that was something that I wanted to kind of get back and, and work with that population again. Um, and, you know, when I came to NIU, this is my sixth year, I met Dr. J my first year, and we had a lot of similarities, um, you know, kind of love for sport, different populations that we'd previously worked with, and a lot, a lot of commonalities. And we knew that we wanted to kind of work together and collaborate. Um, and we just really needed to find some time to kind of carve out, like, what that collaboration would look like. Um, and basically, kind of one of the things that we came up with was starting a physical activity and life skills program. And that's something over the course of a, about a semester or two, we kind of carved out a good general framework of like what this program would look like, what are some of the general aims. And it was really just trying to figure out the perfect setting and the perfect context that we wanted to work with. And one of the things that we are lucky enough, we have access to a juvenile detention center in St. Charles, Illinois, which is about 40 minutes from our house. So um, we had some meetings set up with them. And after a couple of meetings and some conversations, they were really excited about kind of some of the work that we were doing and some of the work that we were pitching to them and kind of mutually, we kind of morphed our program to really fit the needs that they had. And basically uh, what we did when this is starting back in 2018 is we started kind of quote unquote Project Flex. And this has kind of morphed and, and kind of um, developed into a lot of different things over the years. But what we started with is like what we call our basic general Project Flex sessions. And basically what that is is a physical, physical activity and life skill program where we run you know, programming for somewhere between 10 and 15 youth at a time. And what that looks like, it meets three times a week for right about 50 to 60 minutes uh, sessions every time we meet. And some of kind of like the general overall aims is we wanna provide these kids with just an opportunity to be active and to move, but to also instill some of these, like, these life skills that are so important and some of the SEL uh, competencies. And one of the things that we realized and we learned really quickly with the kids is you know they're in their rooms or in a common area for pretty much the entire day and they do not have opportunities to leave that space and if you saw their rooms are you know a six or eight by six by eight room with a bed and a toilet and a little desk and their common area has a tv and maybe like a 10 by 10 common space so they really do not have opportunities to be active to play sport so that's kind of you know what our general project flex sessions look like um through that programming we realized that you know it was really challenging to build relationships with the kids and not like you know one or two gas on 10 or 14 kids at a time 
that's where we develop something called Soul Patrol. And we have to say, every time we say Soul Patrol, it makes me cringe because we did not come up with the name of that. Um, and for those listening on the podcast, uh, neither Dr. J or I are very swole, I would say. Uh, we are fit, but not swole. Um, and so our, what we decided is we're going to create this uh, one-on-one personal training program. So we had two graduate students who kind of came to us with the idea that we worked through. And basically what we wanted to create was an opportunity for our graduate students to work one-on-one with youth and provide just like mentorship in whatever capacity that looked like. And we really try to tailor that to each individual youth. So there is a fitness component, um, but there's also a nutritional component or an academic component, an educational component, really depending on what the youth are trying to, you know, what their overall like goals are or aims are, you know, not just with fitness, but just in life in general. And that's something that we've really been excited about. And that's something that we've now been doing for two years. And that kind of has merged more recently over the last year. Um, we've, we've kind of included some college visits. So something that we call Project Flex Crew, which is a college readiness exposure week. That's something that we integrated and we've done uh, a handful of trips. And what, we, what we've done is we have uh, each semester, we're able to bring four youth onto campus and provide them with just like a day in the life of a college student. Um, and kind of the precursor to that is Dr. Jacobs and I meet with them and do an orientation where we you know, kind of explain to them some of the things that they might get to see. Um, kind of talk through you know, how you would chat with a female that comes up to you what, or like the boss or the, you know, the dean of our college. And these are all different people that they're gonna inter- be interacting with. Um, and essentially like what the what that program looks like is the, the the youth come to our campus around 8 39 o'clock they will sit in on a couple college classes they um, will meet with academic advisors we take them on a tour of the um, of the tour of like our building the university and then we also like you know we'll go to a dining hall and eat take them into a dorm and we try to give them just as much of an organic college experience as we can to just show them and give them some exposure to college and one of the things that we found is that a lot of these kids have just never stepped foot on a college campus. And, you know, that's something that, you know, I am lucky enough that I took that, you know, took that for granted growing up the way that I did. But, you know, we don't want to, you know, we're not pushing NIU this whole time on them. We're just like, hey, like, this is, this is possible for you. You know what I mean? Like, this is, they, all the, the kids that we bring are all, I've gotten, they're all high school graduates, and this is a path. It might not be your path, but it is a path. And it's something that is definitely obtainable. And it's something, so, you know, that we've really tried to push. So those three programs have been, kind of the the crux of our programming over the last couple of years. And it seems like a really awesome program and really impactful program, but also a lot of stress and kind of, uh, you know, work that goes into it. And, and also you're working with students in these situations that have dealt with trauma. So I'm wondering if you can talk about how you feel that sport can affect young people who have been exposed to, uh, to various types of trauma. Yeah, I'll talk a bit about the backgrounds of these youth first, um, because that helps sort of understand how and where trauma has developed in their lives. Um, So the the youth in the program are are typically between 16 and 20 years old. You can be incarcerated in these facilities as young as age 14, but that's much more rare. Typically, um, the youth are between 17 and 20 years old. And after 20 years old, they're either released or um, they move on to adult prison facilities. Um, 
most of the youth that we work with are youth of color, so primarily um, from Black, African American backgrounds. So, so in the last couple of years, it's been around 70 to 80 percent Black youth, then maybe around 20 percent Latinx youth, and then um, Caucasian youth make up sort of the remainder of it. Um, and these are youth that are um, charged with more violent um, offenses. Um, so these facilities are, are some of the higher facility, higher security facilities in, in the state. Um, so, so gang violence is very prevalent um, in terms of many of the youth we work with have been have committed murder um, and have very, very strong gang affiliations. And so that's actually a really um, critical environmental factor for our program is we we can't have certain kids mixing um, because of their backgrounds and, and sort of their alliances. And fortunately, our partners at the facility sort of know those dynamics better. You know, we, we don't we we don't want to know nor need to know the inner workings of what's your gang affiliation, who don't you get along with. Like our partners help that happen, but we absolutely recognize that for for many of these youth, the gangs that they belong to. Um, have a very complex um, effect on them. They both recognize that their gang affiliation is possibly what landed them in jail, but, but concurrently their gang affiliation is what has kept them alive or what has helped keep clothes on their back or food on their plate. Um, so we don't adopt like a, an attitude on you shouldn't be in a gang, right? That's definitely not our place to say that. Also, that that minimizes the, the idea that we know that some for some these gangs have helped provide them safety and security. Um, so, so I guess that's sort of an important factor in terms of their backgrounds. It's also important to acknowledge, and this is a podcast, so I'll just say this up front. Um, Dr. Wall and I are both white, um, and so that's something really important for us to um, own in in this. Space. Um, we're both white, we're highly educated, and we have a doctor in our title to where the youth, you know, call us Dr. J or Dr. Wall. And we recognize that that creates like a really um, divisive sort of space for youth who've generally been like, you know, persecuted or victimized by systems. And then here are some white people who they may not have a lot of um, experience even interacting with. Like, it's not uncommon for youth in the program to tell us, like, Oh, I hate white people. You guys are okay, but I hate white people. I, you know, and because they don't have a lot of experience with positive um, white people in their neighborhoods, in their cultures. Um, so that's something you know we do a lot with our graduate students, and then us ourselves as acknowledging is sort of an important environmental factor. Um, also, I'll mention we've primarily worked with males for the beginning part of our program and um, being the sole female in the program for a while, that's also kind of a, an important dynamic to acknowledge, like whether whether we want this or not, the behavior around having a female in a male prison setting is pretty notable and sometimes it can be used for positive. For example, males really like my attention. Um, and so if I can use that of like, let's be participating today and they're like, oh yeah, Dr. J wants me to participate, so I will participate. Um, but obviously, of course, sometimes, you know, we're working with adolescent males and sometimes that can be a bit challenging. They don't see a lot of females as well, so that can be a distracting factor for them. So Dr. Wall and I, like, 
are, you know, we've worked together long enough to know how to sort of navigate those dynamics and, and help, you know, create as positive of a learning space for the youth that we work with as possible. Yeah. And, and in your chapter, you talk about making a safe space in an inherently unsafe environment. And I'm, and I'm wondering, you know, one of the things you talked about is the decision to not include correctional staff. Uh, to me, that's, okay, as an outsider, knowing nothing about the prison system, knowing nothing about this correctional system facility, like, I, I look at that as like, that's very bold, <laughs> you know, just saying like, we don't want correctional officers in here. So can you talk to me about that decision and or like the what the importance of creating that uh, environment was? Yeah, that was an intentional decision for us because we just know the presence of that sort of authority figure um, changes every dynamic. Like they wear a uniform and they carry weapons on them. And that is sort of counterintuitive to the space that we're trying to create. It also sort of echoes the idea of us not feeling safe around them and wishing, you know, if, if we're asking or bringing security staff to be working with us, it's, you know, subliminally sending the message to youth like they feel like they want them or they need them, right? And and that's counterintuitive to the fact that we're trying to build like vulnerable, meaningful, meaningful relationships with the kids. Um, it's not without challenges, though, not at all. Um, and that even crosses into some of the research that we do regarding this program. And, and our institutional review board has been so positive and supportive in helping us navigate protecting, one, youth as a population, two, prisoners as a population, and three, helping us you know, conduct and collect quality, important research. Um, but a lot, sometimes it happens where everything is at odds. So, what's the best practice for the program? What's the best practice for the research? And and what we've surrendered to is um, youth well-being comes above everything else. And so, for example, maybe we learn something from a, a member of our program um, that they consent to sharing in research um, that is really valuable and reflects our program in a positive way but then it may jeopardize their safety at the facility in some way. Maybe if a correctional staff found that out or a peer found that out, um, you know, they could be jumped or get in trouble because it violates something. And so inevitably we make the decision not to use that in our research because that's, you know, we're prioritizing youth well-being. Well, there's a lot of levels to that. There's like so many levels to yeah. that and like going through IRB and getting this and choosing what to share and what not to share. Uh, and obviously in your teaching scenarios, there are scenarios that, you know, you teach in specific ways in this environment. And I'm wondering what happens when what you learn in undergrad doesn't work. Like the best practices go out the window and what, what can you kind of take from what we know in the literature to then apply it in this specific setting? What's the crossover? Yeah, so kind of by trait, uh, you know, I train physical education teachers and I've been doing so for, you know, the better part of 10 years. And, you know, I'm in the schools, whether it's an elementary or secondary, for anywhere from 10 to 20 hours every single week, um, you know, in different capacities. And when we're training either at a clinical level or with student teachers, I really try to focus and teach the three kind of like the, the three most important kind of tenets of teaching. So we talk about effective teaching behaviors like the pedagogy, we talk about content and content knowledge, 
And then we always talk about building relationships with the youth. And something that I think is so valuable is, you know, depending on the context of the setting that you're going to go into, you know, one of those pillars is more or less important. So for example, in elementary school teachers, you can be the worst PE teacher on the planet, but you can walk through the halls and people look at you like a god because you're the PE teacher, right? And it's really, really easy to build superficial relationships with, you know, younger kids, as opposed to in a middle school or in a high school setting, you know, it's really challenging to build relationships and you need to really truly become vested and, and take an interest in your student's life. Whereas in elementary school, you know, it's, it's manage, management and effective teaching behaviors, that pedagogy is so valuable and if you can't effectively manage your class, you know, it doesn't really matter what else you can do because you're never going to get your kids out there and actually, you know, play a game or do an activity. So those are the, you know, those kind of those core competencies that we teach throughout our P programs. But honestly, you know, for us, it's, it's, and this is not unlike a lot of other kind of like out of school contexts, but really the relationships is really the most important piece. And I think that effective teaching behaviors, I don't want to say completely go out the window because honestly, and too many people that have trained me would just kill me if I said it would just completely go out the window. But, you know, it, it's just so hard to really focus on those effective teaching behaviors. So I'll give, I'll give you a good example. So in elementary clinicals at NIU, you know, we talked through how to give a, a high quality proper demonstration of like a modified game or a task. And we go through and we, you know, we'll have them scripts so they have their verbal down pat. We talk through and to demonstrate in the physical space and to use student demonstration and volunteers and all this stuff to give a really high quality visual and a verbal at the same time. And of course, all the while trying to do this as, you know, as quickly as possible so the students aren't you know, doing circles. And so this is something that you know, it's just not realistic in, in our setting. And, and an example of this is I was teaching, we were doing like, it was a human target game activity, which again is completely not a PE appropriate thing. Um, so again, so forgive me for everyone who's trained me, but we did do an activity similar to that in the jail and I was demonstrating it and I was like, all right, I'm going to show you like what this looks like. So when you get hit with the volleyball and I literally took a volleyball and very lightly hit one of our, you know, youth in the, like the shin and I, you know, the whole precipice was, was just describing and demonstrating what this looks like. Well, he looked at me, looked at his like three boys on the side and go like, goes like this. And now I have four kids coming at me and I'm like, well, this is how it ends for me, I guess. Okay. Well, you know, at least it was given a high quality demonstration. And, you know, again, like he gave me like, he like hugged me and I was like, well, I'm never going to do that again. That was a lesson learned. Um, so like that's one example. And another just really small, subtle example is, you know, we were doing, we start every uh, flex session with just like a quick team building activity that, um, you know, parallels whatever our life skill is. And we were in the middle and maybe there's maybe eight or 10 youth and, we were talking and I was like, all right, like raise your hand if you remember the activity that we did last week. The kid looked at me, said about four expletives and goes, we're in jail, dude. We don't raise our hands. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So give me like a nod, yell at me. Like what? So it's just like little things like that, that are kind of those best practices, um, you know, that we really harp and, you know, instill in our teachers. Just, you know, it, we, honestly, they're not effective, but they're, it's a challenge. Um, and one of the things that I will say is, you know, having a really good content knowledge and having, um, like being able to demonstrate that you can perform the sports that we're doing in the facility is really, really valuable. And the other piece I would say is, you know, the relationships is, I think the most important piece of all this, but I will say that as the relationships have developed between us and our GAs and the youth, we are able to instill some of these effective teaching behaviors. Um, you know, not the same way you would in the middle school or high school class, but, you know, our programs 
and kind of like the, the sessions will look a lot different now that those relationships and the trust and that kind of quote unquote safe space has been established. But, you know, a lot of those kind of best practice research based tactics, they, they're just not effective. They just don't work. Yeah. And as a kind of end cap, and I'd, I'd actually love to have you both on again, just to just dive a little deeper on this stuff. Uh, but as a kind of end cap on this program is, you know, Corey Dixon was on the podcast earlier and he talked about how, you know, the question that he poses, what do you do when your discipline is all based on, you know, calling home or sending a detention or whatever, and they're locked up. There's no calling home. There's no detention. There's no, there's nothing you can do to hold over their heads to make it happen. And it, you start realizing, oh, the things that I learned might not be as valuable, but the relationships that I build and the trust that I can build now are way more prevalent and way more like in, in front of your face. And, you know, that's no different to in a middle middle school or high school. And, you know, one of the things that we try to instill in our P program is listen, like the kids that are going to give you a problem, like they don't care about their grades. They don't care about being physically active. They don't care about how to bump a volleyball. And, you know, you're not going to be able to like some of these kids, like they might not have a parental figure in their life that is important to them. And those types of things just aren't good. Like that's not how you should be, you know, being an effective, you know, manager. Like that, that can't be your you know, behavior management system. You know what I mean? And, and building the relationships. And that's one of the, you know, to go back to those three things, if you have a strong relationship with somebody and this is like what we do at the jail, if they don't want to do something, we look at them and be like, dude, like, come on, like do this for me. Like, come on. I, like we need you to do this. And you know, that doesn't work if the relationship's not there. And I think the, the hardest thing, whether it's in, you know, like in a school setting or in an out of school setting is relationship building takes time and it's, it's a skill. And it's a skill that can be honed um, and developed over time, but it is, I think, the most effective relationship or the, the most effective behavior management uh, kind of tool. Because again, your best students are not going to be the ones causing you problems, and your best students are going to be the ones that care about what their parents think or care about their grades. And typically, those are not the ones that are giving you issues. And if they are, you're probably in a whole world of hurt that you probably can't fix anyway. Yeah. And imagine, this might be a podcast for another time, but imagine relationship building when commonalities are virtually absent in terms of, you know, did you see the big game last weekend? Or, you know, wow, the weather's really nice out today. You know, a lot of those Hmm. very like surface level things that can start to get people talking are challenging topics for us to be engaging with youth and yeah. you know like you like how are how's your family like maybe they haven't talked to their family or don't have a positive relationship with their family so um our graduate students get a lot of credit for helping sort of navigate building a relationship in a very uncertain way yeah well speaking of things that are hard let's talk about she hits hard that's my segue of the week but um uh it, it was a cool program obviously i you know um there's a chapter that highlights a little bit of it in our after-school book as well. But you know, reading this 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 chapter about she hits hard, um, and we know that out-of-school programs like this can obviously have a really meaningful impact, which is my second pun of the day. Um, but keep them coming. Why do you think that sport programs like this are important for young girls specifically? And maybe you can speak to the fact that 
you're taking a sport like boxing that isn't super popular with girls, yet there's a ton of female boxers, MMA fighters, Thai boxers, all, all this different boxers, but it's not something that you automatically think of sending your, your daughter to. Sure. Yeah, I think the, the nature of boxing is really what it all has to do with for me. Um, I started this program several years ago because I wish I had a boxing program like this when I was in middle school. Um, I came to the sport of boxing as an adult, truly just looking for something new to do. And I was always a team sport athlete um, and wanted to just step outside the box and see what else was out there. And, and that got me into boxing. And I experienced so much growth and discomfort in me as a person learning the sport and wanted to help give other girls the opportunity. So I went to kind of our local middle school that we have a partnership with and, and talked to the principal who I've got a great relationship with and said, I want to do a girls boxing program. And because this is an awesome school and an awesome principal and great administration, he said, yes. I want to be that principal that says yes to a girls' boxing program for, for middle school students. So I think sort of the, the, like the banter around this sort of almost sexy, provocative sport helps get um, the interest of any youth, but especially girls, because they're just traditionally taught sport's not really a place for you, especially sort of a more aggressive, dominating, like superiority type sport that has been, you know, mostly shown in mainstream media as a male place, you know? So I thought this would be sort of a cool opportunity to give girls to cross into this space. They've typically been excluded from, um, and it's been amazing to see, I mean, the, the, the females that we work with are recommended to the program by uh, the school counselor, school school teachers as being a good fit for a program that could help them feel more empowered. They have like a lack of connectedness to just extracurriculars or sports in general. They've possibly been bullied quite a bit. Um, and the first day of our program, just starting out, we had our graduate students there and we're just doing like a simple getting to know you activity. And the population of our, our girls was, they were all so timid and so quiet. They would barely even say their names to us the first day. But then as soon as we put on the boxing gloves and had our training pads there, suddenly they're talking, you're hearing volume in their voice, they're interacting. And so I don't know what it is yet, but there's something a bit sort of magical about the, the assertiveness or the aggression that can come out during that sport of boxing that really helps kind of create this, this space for this program. Yeah, and you can't see off off camera here, but I have my boxing heavy bag here. Just, it, it mostly takes out uh, the aggression on peer review papers and reviewer comments. And I have my boxing gloves over there and sometimes they just, they just have to go on. Uh, but, and I forgot to make, make this connection too because both of, your, both of the programs that we've talked about uh, bring in TPSR and they kind of are rooted in that system. And one of the things that She Hits Hard brings in is understanding body image and uh, positive self-perception. And I thought that was such a cool uh, aspect to it. And I'm wondering what was the impetus of, of adding it? So like, why, why did you feel like that was something that you needed 
to add in addition to it? And what did it kind of, uh, what did it look like? Yeah, so just like we talked about with Flex and, and all of the programs that are highlighted in the chapter, you know, we know this, that sport provides some sort of authentic opportunity for life skills to be integrated because um, it creates like a safe space and an opportunity to connect. Um, but there's also been sort of this age old saying I hear like parents say it, teachers say it. If you want to talk to a male student or your son or your nephew about something serious, take them to the basketball court or go throw, go throw a football around or, you know, go do, you know, do something where you're holding a ball or some, a sport equipment in your hand. That's mm-hmm. the only way uh, a male will talk about something serious, which I think is ridiculous. But I also think there's some truth to it. And I think it's not just for males either, but it's for females as well. There's some sort of pattern where, you know, if you're just in a support group or you're talking to your counselor or stuff, the, the feeling of talking about like serious vulnerable life stuff is less you know freeing and less attractive but when it's around some sort of movement experience like ie boxing um, it just suddenly becomes less forced and more natural um, and so i think in our program we really emphasize having the freedom to talk about body image in a way that's led by the students. And so, as you mentioned, we use the TPSR formatting um, and Hellison's model to help us sort of transfer that power from, instead of it's the coaches leading discussions, it's the students. And so we have this question box, um, you know, the typical sort of fishbowl activity and and there it's the body image box and, and the girls can write um, questions about anything um, and throw it in box and we'll have question time each session and I'm telling you like the the questions that we get are ones you might expect but then also totally out there questions that go down this rabbit hole that is way more productive than any coach could have ever facilitated so I remember one session we spent an entire hour talking about the question how come I feel so guilty after eating a bowl of mashed potatoes and like when we read the question, all of us coaches side-eyed each other and were like, where is this going to go? But it transpired and it was student-led by, you know, by our middle school students and went into this place of just amazing, like admitting stuff and growth and all of that. And, and you know, we, they write more traditional questions to like, you know, um, sexuality comes up a lot in the in the club as well. So, you know, if I'm looking at girls' bodies in the locker room, does that mean I'm gay or, you know, I think I like a girl, just, you know, and that's something that um, has really sort of become sort of a sub-theme in our club is talking about that. And then also it's a bit of girl power as well. Like why are boys so stupid? I think has been written 17 times as a question in our question box. Um, so that's sort of one aspect of it, but along with the question box um, feature, just like Project Flex, we intentionally structure each session of boxing club around a specific life lesson. So maybe it's um, dedication, maybe it's self-awareness. Um, so even though we're teaching a, a new boxing skill every day, we always integrate it or sort of morph it into the life skill for the day and so if we're teaching the boxing move like a slip or a weave which is basically a defensive move to avoid a punch coming at you there's always some sort of corresponding metaphor that goes along with it so 
how do you slip and weave negative feedback from a peer or how do you, you know, weave away from society or social media showing all these ideal body types or like what's your counterpunch or, you know, there's so many, I mean, love that analogies. You've already got a couple puns going right. So there's so many ways you can handle it. Even like our, our uh, club mantra is um, if we are strong and we are one and we correspond it with we are strong getting in our boxing stance and we are one throwing a jab, which is also known as the one punch. And, and I think to the girls that, that makes it feel really kind of fun and also just like integrates you know, the important life stuff with this cool sport that they're doing. Yeah. Uh, so my grad student uh, ran a program, not around boxing, but in an after school program. And it was a girl only program with uh, body image uh, issues that were discussed every week. And so I'm wondering what your experience was in, were there guys allowed as in, were there male teachers allowed? Or was it a strictly female only space? Because I know that when I came in to observe her or like support her, the conversation shifted and changed. And they're like, why is he here? I thought we were gonna talk about our stuff. And I was like, ah, I'm leaving. <laughs> like, I'm not gonna stick around. But I, I felt like I, I made a change in that environment so I wouldn't go in there when they were talking. How, how was that breakdown in, in your coaches and, and the students? Yeah, that's a great question. So for the first two years, we just had female graduate students uh, and undergraduate students leading the program. Um, not necessarily because we weren't allowing male students, but I just never had any interest from a male student to enter that space. But shortly after that, I had a male graduate student who approached me after I had talked about the program in class and, and he asked, could he get involved and could he volunteer? And um, I thought it was an awesome idea, but then of course, like true to the TPSR format and, and just like the, the point of the club is we took the idea back to the girls and said, how would you feel about this? Like, and how do you want this to look? And they, they sort of, you know, drew up like a contract and like, we're going to have him come in for a trial period and see how that goes. And then, you know, if we ever want to ask him to leave the room to talk about something and they came up with way more details than they ever actually needed to use. He came in and he was great and the girls felt extremely comfortable with him and he rolled with it so well too. And, you know, we're talking about periods or where we're, there's a little bit of like, like boy bashing or whatever. Um, but they ultimately came up with the rationale that um, they want him there to sort of help represent and or pass on knowledge to other boys or males like you know seeing him as an ambassador of the cause and it actually ended up working out really well so he passed the probationary period that's good he did he was graded and provided a, a feedback and assessment as well <laughs> I, I love it so in wrapping this up uh i mean i could sit, stay here for another hour talking about these two programs and i i feel like they're really meaningful programs that have helped, you know, again, and, and I think that's similar to programs that I've run. I'm not teaching 1,000, 2,000 students in several cities, but, you know, you're doing this program that's so meaningful for a smaller uh, population. And, and I think that getting the research out that you have in this chapter and in, in, in the different research papers that you all have put out in chapters and books and stuff, I, I think it's really interesting. Um, 
but my last question I've asked this to everybody, um, and you can take it wherever you want, and knowing that this is the last one, uh, why SEL? Yeah, so this is, of course, you, you save your hardest question for the end, of course. Um, I think for me, you know, like, when I think back on like all my teaching experiences, like I started like way you know, back at University of Georgia. I, when I was, a, I was a pre-law major back in the day and I had to do some volunteer hours and I ended up volunteering on an after school program. And I ended up doing that and that experience shifted my lens to maybe pre-law is not the right you know, career for me, maybe teaching is. And I ended up working at that after school program for a multitude of years, like three or four years. Um, and I just remember this, this one interaction kind of stuck out where there was um, a second grade girl and she came up to me one day I was sitting on like one of those picnic benches and she just looked at me and you know we were talking and she said you know like Mr. Zach you're you're my favorite teacher and you know we kind of talked through it and I was kind of like you know I remember going home and being like huh like I'm not you know I'm not even a teacher and kind of thinking through you know like how she came to that realization and whatnot and I think you know the reason I bring that up is you know I think it, Teachers nowadays, it's, there's so many pressures and so many constraints and things that they have to juggle and work on that sometimes just the, just the building the relationships and coming up with these bonds with your students, like you said, the 2,000 students that you might see in a given week, it's really hard to connect with, with every single one meaningfully or you know, a handful of them meaningfully. And you know, I just think back to my experiences as a student and the things that I remember you know, in middle school, high school, elementary school, like it wasn't like any facts and it wasn't, you know, the year Christopher Columbus came or whatnot. It was, you know, some of those interactions and the experiences and the moments that I had with a teacher or with a coach or in an after school program, kind of with like, you know, your mentor. And it's those, you know, teaching about resiliency or learning about, you know, how to, you know, grind when things are getting difficult or how to overcome challenging circumstances. Like those are the things that, I learn most from school, and I think those are the things that sometimes teachers struggle with to instill in their students. And I think, at least for me personally, like those are the biggest, um, you know, the most, the things that I learned most in my schooling, and it's the things that I think should be instilled and need to be instilled in our students, you know, regardless of the grade level. So I think for me, you know, that is why the SEL is so important, is because it, it, it teaches things that need to be taught to the Absolutely. Jen? Yeah, I'll use a Spider-Man quote here that I've always liked. Um, in the movie, they say, with great power comes great responsibility. And I'm guessing they say that in the cartoon, too, but I'm not, I'm not a car cartoony person, so I don't, or a uh, comic person, hence I just called it a cartoon. Um, but there's the quote, um, with great power comes great responsibility. And I think, um, you know, educators in the physical education, education, physical activity, my field, sports psychology, we have so much great power because we teach the coolest things in the world. Like I used to talk about, um, you know, Colin Kaepernick in class or my student's final project was to watch the last dance Michael Jordan documentary and assess it from a sociological perspective. Like I just think we, we teach the coolest things that students are so interested in. No offense to like exercise physiology or sport management or statistics or all that stuff, but like the captive audience in, in our field is a little bit greater than those fields, I would say. But with that, I think we have more of an onus and more of a duty to 
take it to another level into like the SEL world and integrate development in terms of a more holistic lens. And, and so I just think that it's our job to do it. Otherwise, I just watch documentaries as my career or play with, you know, sporting equipment. Like I think we need to make it a little bit more deep than that. And so um, I just think that it's an awesome opportunity and awesome um, space to provide such lasting impact through sport and physical activity and SEL. Yeah, and, and you both have, through your work, done that. And uh, this has been an awesome podcast. I've really, really enjoyed my time and I feel like we should redo part of this and in, in some future podcast because I, I feel like there's a lot a uh, lot more to unpack and we haven't even talked about the two other programs that you highlight in your uh, in your chapter so um, hopefully uh, those of you who are listening uh, the po- uh, the book comes out next week July 1st uh, and uh, you can read about the other two programs and read more in depth about the programs that we just highlighted here um, but for, for both of you thank you so much for, for coming on and, uh, and chatting and thanks for the contribution to the book Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. All right, and that's all we got. And uh, we'll we'll put some uh, notes about the programs and uh, profiles to uh, both of our guests in the uh, notes section. Thanks.